Hello, I'm Tyler Pitroff. Welcome to Preble Hall. Today we're going to begin our third session with retired Admiral Michael Mullins and uh, my colleague from the NHHC, Dr. John Sherwood. Gentlemen, once again, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Tyler. Good to be with you. Thanks. So to follow up what we were talking about in our last session, Admiral, uh, we had finished off in the early 80s, but we were hoping to back up a little bit to a conversation we had after we finished recording uh, about a fire that you experienced on the Noxubi off Valencia, Spain in February of 1974. Uh, can you explain what happened and how it was contained? And I think you mentioned in our conversation the heroics of a specific sailor. Yeah, this was a, Noxubi, just to remind, was a gasoline tanker. So uh, we had, as I recall, 750,000 gallons of diesel fuel, but we also carried 50,000 gallons of mo gas uh, for the Marines. <clears throat> diesel gas, really diesel fuel for their uh, vehicles ashore to support the amphibious force. And uh, one, uh, one night, uh, we were at sea in the Western Med off Valencia, and there was a fire reported in the forward half of the ship. Uh, and, um, and so we go to general quarters, and and uh, it gets, you know, as a captain, you're waiting for reports that it is uh, contained and out, et cetera. And I never got those reports. And it seemed to be getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and it was a particularly difficult fire because of the amount of smoke that it was generating. Um, and... And it turned out there was enough discovery about what was going on that there was this huge line hauser, we call it, probably a, probably a four or five inch nylon hauser that was uh, laying across uh, a, a bank of uh, resistors, if you will, that had gotten uh, obviously very, very hot uh, and became the cause of the fire. And the team was having a great deal of difficulty getting in to get it removed because it was that hot, that smoky, and again, it was going in the wrong direction. And I, I then can remember having this discussion with this one young, happened to be African-American sailor um, uh, who knew a little bit about, who was on the damage control team. <clears throat> and this is not a huge ship, so it wasn't like we were all far apart. Uh, and he was describing, uh, at least from his point of view, and he was like an E3 uh, fireman uh, or seaman, I can't remember, but he was describing to me what he saw, and I remember turning to him and I said, uh, you know, Seaman Jones, whatever his name was, you, you need to go in there and get that line off that resistor bank. And he just turned to me, saluted, and he went in uh, and basically almost single-handedly did that in, you know, in great, and really in great harm's way. Not that he wasn't dressed for it, he had the right gear, but in my, in my view, literally saved the ship. Uh, again, this is a, this is, you don't want to have a, you don't want to have a fire on any ship, you really don't want to have a fire uh, on a, uh, on an oiler, uh, if for obvious reasons. So I can just remember that, you know, some, a young, and, and I experienced, my experience with, young enlisted my whole life was at sea was like that they were extraordinary young in those days all men but they were extraordinary young people who would die for you if from a leadership standpoint you took care of them and that was an example of 
uh, of saving, you know, in my view, upwards of 100 lives uh, in addition to, you know, keeping us on track to stay deployed and continue to carry out our mission. So we will fast forward to the 81 to 83 period of your career when you were XO, Executive Officer of the USS Sterrett, CG-31. Uh, how did you end up with this job? And you, can you tell us a bit about the ship? Uh, the ship was famous because she brought down a, a MiG with the Terrier missile in Vietnam in 1972. Yeah, right. And that I, made I, her a, quite a famous ship. Yeah, I would have said 72. Um, she was also the fifth ship named Sterrett. I just remember that. Uh, because we did quite a bit of work, and, and I always tried to do this, whatever ship I was on, with the ship's history and with newsletters <clears throat> about the ship. But I do remember Sterrett has this, uh, had this incredible history, and even as we speak today in 2022, you know, there's another Sterrett that's out in the fleet. Uh, and when I think when I was CNO, I recommended pretty strongly to the to the Secretary of the Navy, who by and large gets to pick names of ships, uh, that Sterrett would be a good choice, and somehow he saw fit to continue the legacy, which I think is just terrific. So, so I had come off, actually, before I went to Sterrett, I was Chief Engineer on the Fox. We've talked a little bit about that. CG-33, well, this was, Sterrett was CG-31. So this was another air defense ship. It was essentially the, one of two air defense cruisers at the time that were stationed in the Western Pacific. The other one was, as I recall, was USS Reeves, uh, a little bit different class of ship. Um, um, I think Reeves was a, what we used to call a double-ender, Leahy-class uh, guided missile uh, cruiser. Um, and Reeves was stationed in Yakuska. Sterrett, basically, it, there was a decision made to change her home port from San Diego to Subic Bay. Uh, and I literally met the ship as she arrived in Subic Bay. I had recently deployed on Fox, uh, gotten back from that deployment, went to a few weeks of, of PXO, what we call PXO school, um, uh, which was, which was uh, pre-executive officer school in Newport, and then uh, flew to the Philippines to meet the ship. Uh, my wife, Deborah, and my kids were seven months old and 27 months old when, when we got there. Uh, it was quite, quite an extraordinary, I, I had been to the Philippines before, but it's one thing to go through on a liberty, you know, as part of a, uh, a, a several-day liberty call or even a maintenance call, uh, which I had done before on other ships. It's quite, again, different to go there to live, which is what we did. Um, and it was, a, it was a very busy time, 1981. Um, uh, so I took over as XO, um, and uh, it's one thing to be XO of a ship in San Diego, California. It's quite different to be XO of a ship uh, in the Philippines. Uh, uh, while we had good relationships uh, and good relations with the Philippines at the time, sailors could get in trouble. Oftentimes there, were, uh, there was this uh, 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 opportunity uh, to be put on legal hold if behavior was poor, et cetera. So it was different. There were, you know, in a way, there were different challenges from a, from a uh, being homeported in San Diego, California. That said, uh, the the Navy in that part of the world is a very busy Navy. Its operational tempo has always been up compared to 
West Coast or even Hawaii or even the East Coast uh, because it's an operational theater and you're living in it all the time. So, uh, and, and then secondly, while I had, there was a, the captain was a guy named Dan Richardson uh, who was there for about the first six months, I think, that I was commanding officer. And then, and this really was sheer coincidence, uh, people that know us think differently, but then the, his relief was uh, my mentor in the Navy, the guy had been my CO when I was on Blandy, George Sullivan, came in as the, the uh, commanding officer of, of Starrett and was a dear friend and a mentor. And so having him as the CO made you know, life a lot easier. And just a couple of thoughts uh, over the course. That tour was, I think it was 17 months we were there. Um, uh, one of the things we did was pick up uh, what we called back in the day the, the Vietnamese boat people. Uh, and the ship uh, was very much known for that. I mean, we were operating in those waters routinely, so it wasn't a surprise uh, that we did that uh, or that the opportunity presented itself. And we had done that, uh, there had been a, I think I said the last time we sat down, we also did that uh, on the USS Fox, which maybe was a year, 18 months before that, something like that. Um, uh, secondly, we, we were operating, but back in those days, and, I, and again, we were an air defense ship, uh, and the biggest threat that the fleet had were the Soviets, uh, what we used to call the backfire bombers, but we had Soviet aircraft that we would be defending against, and this was at the height of the you know, Cold War, quite frankly. Uh, where the Soviets were the number one threat. So we routinely practiced against that, and we became one of two, you know, what we call major warfare commanders. Uh, it was either going to be Reeves or it was going to be Starrett protecting the carrier. And I think, uh, I'm trying to remember who, who the carrier was at the time. That's findable, I'm sure. But the carrier that was home ported in Yakuska at the time, it may have been USS Independence. Uh, I can't really recall. Um, but essentially, that's how we operated routinely with those ships. And we operated, you know, around Korea, around Japan, you know, in the, in the Sea of Japan, in the, uh, in the South China Sea, and then all the way through, actually, not too long after I left, the ship went, into the, went through the Straits of Malacca and up into uh, the Indian Ocean, and, the, and the, I think it went up into the Gulf. So that was the operational area, and the, and the operational tempo you know, was pretty high. Uh, there were, uh, you know, there were different challenges living, you know, living in the PI than, than, as I said before, than going through that. But it was a wonderful, wonderful tour, you know, again, with my mentor as a CO made much easier because he, he was a commanding officer. So it was, uh, it was very impactful. And I, I can remember him promoting me to commander at the time. That's when I was, uh, that's when I, uh, was selected for that pay grade. So, uh, you know, literally a, a, a great tour, great time, you know, and typical, you know, difficult family move, difficult being there in, in ways, uh, but it was also a family environment because everybody's living on base uh, and you make great friends um, and, and the families, they're all going to the same schools. Or, so it was, uh, in that regard, it, it was a pretty special time. I supervised a thesis written by a, a Naval Academy midshipman who went on to be a Rhodes Scholar, and she focused on the relationship between the Navy and the Philippines in this period. And she actually looked at 
legal holds in particular. Yeah. And what she found, uh, her name is Major Katie Slavosky, U.S. Marine Corps. What she found is that what was happening is a lot of sailors were getting married without permission of their chain of command and using the legal hold system to sort of get out of having to go back to sea. Does that ring a bell at all? Actually, no. In fact, my problem, my challenge was the opposite, was the number of sailors that, because you had to put in a request to have it approved, your chain of command had to approve it. My challenge were the number of sailors who wanted to get married that put chits in. Uh, and these were some pretty young sailors that that were in a completely different place, uh, having, you know, I, I, one, the way I used to describe it, having, you know, come from Nebraska into this place called Subic Bay. Uh, and there were a lot of local women that saw an opportunity, if you will, to, you know, to marry an American, and that they saw that as a, you know, very significant way ahead to improve their life. So, I, I, I mean, I had not plenty, but I had my share of sailors put on legal hold. I don't ever remember a single case with respect to that. I do know, I think, I think we left the PI in 84, so three years later. I mean, I, I didn't really experience uh, any of that, and I can't remember if that was Pinatubo or departure, but the, so, some big events that were coming. One was the volcano. Uh, and the other was uh, was the departure, but in, in terms of being home ported there, and in terms of having a physical presence uh, in the Philippines, not just the Navy, but all the military, because we had a big Air Force base at Clark, U.S. Air Force Base, at Clark Air Force Base. Um, um, but my experience with legal hold is it 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 could be used by the government, you know, against us. But I don't recall a single case along the lines of what, what you're describing in that regard. But it was very real, and it wasn't just for young enlisted, because there were officers that would get put on legal hold as well, and it's something that we had to work all the time. But I never remember a case where, the example where somebody was actually trying to get put on legal hold so they could stay there, that's one. And then I also don't remember a legal hold case that we couldn't eventually reconcile and get the individual back off legal hold. Can you talk about the various bilateral relationships between the Navy and other navies in Asia during this time? Did you, did you recall exercises with South Korea, with Japan? Yeah, um, I mean, the one that I, the one that I recall, the, the, the Navy, the self-defense force that I recall the most was, would be Japan. And I had worked with them before. I think I would have told you on my first deployment, my first port visit was in Japan. I, we didn't work with the, with the Self-Defense Force then. But I had worked with them on other deployments, and they were very good. I, even back then, I know they're, they are actually and technically and legally called the Self-Defense Force, the, the military in, uh, in Japan. And I understand all the reasoning behind that. But I found their Maritime Self-Defense Force, their Navy, to be really good and not just close in, not, not just what sort of comes to mind when you talk about self-defense. They could go to sea. I mean, they were, they were borderline blue water Navy, to use terms that you know, we use for us, because they could operate far from their home port 
and sustain that and then operate really well, very capable ships. So Japan is the one I remember the most. Yes, we did some work with, while I was there with, uh, uh, with South Korea in, in exercise kinds of things. Those were the big two. Uh, I don't remember operating significantly w with other, uh, you know, with other navies per se. Although there was there was an annual exercise off, uh, up in Thailand called Cobra Gold right. that brought multiple uh, navies together or militaries together. But part of that was the maritime, the the navy part of it. So we did. We also did that. But I did that. I think I did that on Fox, the previous deployment. I did it on Starrett. Um, uh, and then eventually, you know, when I commanded Goldsboro, I think I did it again. So, so those exercises were exercises that we fairly routinely, routinely participated in. Can you address the strategic significance of those bases in the Philippines at the time? Um, well, I, I think having those, having, having the, the bases in Yokosuka, Japan, as well as Subic, are exactly as you describe. I mean, it's a very strategic move. It also fosters relationships, you know, with those countries and actually with their neighbors. Because you're living there, you, and I think I've talked about this before, you actually get uh, somewhat, you certainly get immersed in their culture if you're doing it right. You get somewhat immersed in their history. And having an understanding of that in all those relationships, even to this day, uh, our, our strategic relationships is really critical. Um, that's certainly been true in Japan as well. If you've ever talked to uh, sailors uh, who've lived in Japan forever, I mean, they know the culture, they know the people, and the same is true in the PI as well. And as I said earlier, living there is a whole lot different than passing through uh, or going there for a maintenance availability coming off the line, which is what we did in Subic uh, as well. And we've got a, it wasn't just Subic, we, we had a naval air station there, QB Naval Air Station, so we had a lot of aviators that also came through there. And it was a very strong, easily reachable support base for our deployed ships. That, and you didn't have to just be home ported out there because uh, other ships, it was, a, you know, it was an area of high-intensity deployments, had been for some time. Uh, and this is, this is, what, nine, this is, uh, depending on how you want to count this, six to nine years after our high level of deployments uh, off of Vietnam, uh, where we still sustained that relationship. So, and, and I'm somebody that's, I've always believed those relationships, those engagements, those deployments, bases that we have around the world, go a long way to providing the kind of security, if you will, creating the kind of relationships where hopefully the military doesn't get used, but is the, it is the presence piece uh, that sends the message uh, that says, you know, not, you know, today isn't a great day to be starting any kind of conflict because we're there and we can respond pretty quickly. Your ship received visits from the CNO, uh, Thomas Haywood, and also Admiral James Watkins, Sink Pack Fleet. Do you recall those visits? This was Stara. So two things, actually a couple. We embarked. I talked previously when I was in command of Naksubi in seventy three, seventy four, about 
being uh, supported by uh, the USS, I think it was the Gilmore in La Madalena, and the CEO of that ship was Harry Schrader, Captain Harry Schrader. Well, Schrader went on to make flag, and when I was exo Starrett, uh, he was a battle group commander, or crew des group commander, and he deployed and embarked in Starrett. So I had, and he was a guy a lot of people feared, uh, just by virtue of his own style, because we had had this relationship when I was a lieutenant in command, and he, just to remind, had had command as a lieutenant when he got ripped into the into the nuclear power surface nuclear power program, uh, which and and he really loved. I think he was CEO of an ATF, a tugboat, uh, you know, fleet a fleet tug, and he was he really wanted to stay on that tugboat. He didn't have much of a choice. So when he embarked on us, you know, I, I as the XO. Uh, immediately had a you know had a great relationship with him, and that made a huge difference in how the staff embarked, et cetera. And we worked hard, obviously, as anybody does, to to support your embarked flag staff. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't as impactful, impactful or as tough as a lot of people thought it would be, knowing Schrader's reputation, which was which was pretty tough. Um, so there was uh, there was that aspect of it, and as you bring up Hayward. Uh, 1981, CNO, the, the big impact, and, and I came to know him pretty well in, my, in, in his retirement, both in my time as CNO and since, uh, extraordinary individual, but the drug issue in the Navy at the time was really running rampant. Uh, and uh, because we were de forward deployed, uh, we, uh, the CNO uh, procured uh, urinalysis kits, if you will, and they were very rare back then. And my recollection was he only had three, and I got one of them on the Starrett. And because I could then, and the law, the, the law and regulation, I think it was a regulation back then, is you couldn't test an individual by Social Security number to ID him, but you could, what we used to call, uh, you could screen the whole crew and you could see the extent of the problem that you had. And I can remember one having this kit, and we went to Pattaya Beach, Thailand, <clears throat> which, and there was, uh, there, drugs were rampant there, and we knew that. And I can remember giving the screening the entire crew of Sterrett coming out of that port visit, and the percentage, I can't remember what it was, but it was exceptionally high that popped positive. What Hayward did, and there was just, the time, and we could probably find it. I can remember a, a, a what I, I would call a political cartoon uh, in one of the leading newspapers, Post or, or uh, New York Times in the country, of USS Enterprise, <clears throat> and uh, and you were looking at a cartoon of Enterprise in its wake, and all there were were marijuana plants in the wake, and that was a pretty strong depiction of where we were. Uh, with respect to drugs, it turns out not just in the Navy, but also in the military at the time. So when Hayward gave me that urinalysis kit, he gave me a path out. And while I thought before that time, whatever ship I was on, that I had a handle on the drug problem on the ship, uh, I didn't really have one until we got that kit. And that's when it started to abate. Uh, and the rules evolved over time where eventually you could discipline somebody for and positive um, on the test. So that's what I, I don't remember Hayward's visit, but I do remember 
uh, the impact that he had, which was huge. Last question about Sterrett. How did your wife enjoy living in in the Philippines? Well, it, it, it was actually for us. So I mentioned the two kids. One, the younger was seven months old, and the older was was twenty seven months old. She was heavily. She was the senior spouse because the, I mentioned. For the first six months, the CO, because he was leaving, his, his spouse did not move to the Philippines. She stayed in San Diego. So she was the senior wife. Uh, and, and as she always had, she jumped in on all family issues. And they were, you know, they, they included housing and benefits and uh, how quickly you could get into housing. <clears throat> There's a naval communication station up in San Miguel, 40 or so kilometers away, as I recall. Uh, where there was also housing, so getting up there was a chore and dealing with the issues that were associated with that. But, you know, Deb was heavily engaged with families. And again, it's a, it's a unique and different environment than being engaged with families in San Diego or Norfolk or uh, any stateside. Uh, uh, and it brought its own, you know, significant challenges in that regard. Late in your time as XO of Sterrett, you decided you wanted to attend the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, speaking of changes of scenery, yeah, uh, this was a fairly late stage in your career to want to do so. Very uh, late. So why did you decide to attend at this point? What, mo what was your motivation? Uh, how did you end up going about getting into the postgraduate school? Well, I think I may have mentioned early, you know, when I was a midshipman here, I actually was not a great student. I, I didn't have any trouble academically, really, but I really was not a great student. Uh, and I was anxious to, to some degree, rectify that. Mm. Uh, one, two, uh, dear, dear friend, um, uh, Admiral uh, Bill Cobb, who was a classmate of mine, he and I were department heads on uh, Fox together. I was the engineer, he was a weapons officer, and he had gone through the PG school in operations research in the mid-70s. And we had talked about that a lot, and I was very attracted to that curriculum. It's a tough curriculum. It's a, basically, in my view, it's applied math to real-world problems. <clears throat> and I was, you know, I was good in math, and I like solving real-world problems. So it's something I really wanted to do. We had lived in the Philippines uh, um, for you know, a year and a half. Uh, I had two little ones. Both our families were from California. Uh, and I really wanted to get a master's. So <clears throat> my detailer at the time was a was uh, a lieutenant commander by the name of Hank Giffen. Hank eventually made flag and retired as a three-star and as a dear friend. But Hank said, you got to come to D.C. And I said, I don't want to go to D.C. I want to go to Monterey. Uh, and he says, there's not room for you. I said, I think I can probably find room. And he said something along the lines. He said two things. One is, okay, if you, if you think you can, if you can find room, find a sponsor, uh, I'll send you. But the other thing he said was, you know, I'm sure this will end your career. <laughs> uh, and Hank and I have talked about that later in life and had a good laugh about it. Uh, but I really insisted for a number of reasons. Uh, I wasn't going to go back to sea again. I had not screened for Commander Command. That would be my next uh, career wicket, if you will. Um, and uh, I was willing to put my record at sea against anybody's. And if that wasn't good enough to screen for Command, then then I would figure out, you know, what I do after, uh, after the education, after I got the master's degree. So I insisted, Hank let me do it, and then I found a slot, and I ended up in Monterey as basically I, as an 05, as a student, which was very unusual. Most of the curricular officers out there were 05s, 
and here I was a student uh, taking operations research. I hadn't cracked a math book in 15 years. I took a, we used to call it uh, uh, stupid study, but you would you could go there early and take either six weeks or 12 weeks of, of preliminary courses to get ready to sort of officially start the course. So I think I got there in time to take six weeks uh, worth of courses before the real curriculum began. And, and I saw all the math I ever knew was covered in that six weeks, and then we started from there. But the other thing I found out, I was, obviously I was a little older and much more mature, was the impact if you actually studied. You know, you could learn the material and, <laughs> and, and do well, which was not my strength when I was a midshipman. So uh, it's a two-year curriculum, a very difficult curriculum, uh, and, uh, and in that regard, very rewarding and very impactful. You know, I've talked about that time frame. The Navy's not very good about sending students to a curriculum and then detailing them to assignments that are associated with that curriculum. Uh, the other services, the Marine Corps in particular, is, is very good about that. Essentially, if you go to the PG school in Monterey, which is a great institution to this day, they will then detail you, assign you to a follow-on assignment that has direct application to the studies that, that uh, you received, your, the, the area that you received your master's in. Typically, what the Navy does is it sends you back to sea. I mean, so it's difficult to do that, per se. But even after that, when you go ashore, we're not very good at assigning you in accordance with what you've studied. So, uh, so anyway, that, that I went there for two years. It was an extraordinarily difficult curriculum I, um, uh, for me. But again, uh, and I can remember going home after a year talking to my wife and saying, I'm not sure, because it really was a struggle. I mean, the grades were fine, but it really was a struggle. Uh, and I met uh, then, uh, then Ensign by the name of Jerry Brown, uh, who had come out of UCLA, who was a PhD. Uh, and the only C that I got was from Jerry Brown uh, in linear equations. And I'll never forget that. And Brown has become a good friend, and I always reminded I always remind him of that, and he always reminds me that I wasn't a good enough student to get better than a C grade. He was a tough, he was known, he was known as a tough grader. But that two years had a big impact, I mean, in lots of ways. First of all, uh, it was a great, as it is today, the postgraduate school is a great family tour, uh, and it's time away from what we do for a living. There's a combination, yes, it's good for the Navy, but it's also good for you and your education and your maturity and, and, and what you learn. Uh, it's a high quality uh, uh, faculty. I mean, basically, there are, no there are no teaching assistants there. They all teach. Obviously, it's in Monterey, which is one of the you know, greatest places in the world, literally, physically, to be. Uh, and it was for us, you know, it was, it was relatively close to home. Both our families were from Los Angeles. Our parents could see the kids, the grandkids, uh, which was a part of it as well. So it was just this wonderful combination. And I was willing to take the risk uh, that my record would stand up. Uh, and while I was there for screening, because I hadn't screened yet, while I was there, I went through my second, I think it was my second and third looks for Commander Command. I didn't screen on the second look, which was a, which was pretty jarring. And then I had one look left. I, th we, there were really four looks, but the division was 30%, 30%, 30%, and the fourth look was 10%. So there's almost no chance that you'd screen on the fourth look. Uh, and, and it turns out I screened for Command on the third look. Uh, 
which meant I could go back to sea and command a ship again, which I was pretty excited about. So you've said in the past specifically uh, to a interview with Moores a couple of years ago, Military Operations Research yeah. Society, uh, that NPS has a special significance for you. Is there anything beyond what you've already said that really underlines that? Well, probably at more than I knew, certainly at the time, was it really did teach me how to frame a problem. I mean, it wasn't like I sat down and did uh, analytical math work uh, on challenges that I had down the road, but it really did uh, teach me to, how to frame a problem. It gave me a great appreciation for data. There was a guy, one of the professors was a guy named Bob Reed, who was one of the world's best experts on data. This is 1983, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, and understanding data, which obviously has become much more relevant in current times, and maybe not more relevant, but certainly much more discussed because of the availability of it now compared to back then. Um, so it, it probably more than anything else, it gave me a facility to, to at a very, you know, I would say at a, a strategic level and practical level, to be able to frame a problem and figure out how to solve it, how to tee it up, uh, what were the important parts of it, which is what that curriculum does, and that you could model those problems. To and I use that, you know, I used as I became more senior, uh, I used the Center for Naval Analysis, which is you know heavy into that kind of analysis uh, over the course of my career to look at really difficult challenges that we had as an institution. For example. And I understood what they were doing. I wasn't just asking them to do something and come back with an answer, but I also could understand how they worked their way through it. So it just it it was a special place in so many ways, including that. So personally, professionally, uh, academically, uh, family-wise, et cetera. It just it, it was a you know a very very and I'd been to see a lot you know up to that point. So it was a really nice break in that regard. What role should the postgraduate or should a postgraduate education play in the development of a naval officer? You've told us what role it played for you. Uh, can you conceptualize that a little bit more broadly for where that should be? Sure. For well, first of all, for, first of all, you, back to it, it is an exquisite institution, even to this day. I'm, yes, I don't, I I don't support, mean to make it sound like no, no, it's, it's going no, no, downhill or anything. No, I, su- I support, uh, I'm, I'm working, uh, some of my time to this day is helping uh, Vice Admiral Anne Rondeau, who's the current president, she's retired uh, at the PG School uh, a lot in support of the institution inside the Navy uh, is, is one. Sec- so w- what role should, first of all, you should go much younger than I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's relatively easy in the submarine community and in the surface community and in some of the uh, restricted line communities to fit it into your career path. It is less. It is more difficult in the aviation community because once you start in aviation, you go for ten or eleven years. The nice part about it in the in the surface and the submarine community is you can go as a lieutenant, uh, seven, six, five, six, seven years in, uh, which I think is the ideal time. Uh, I still teach here as as we've talked about, and I taught at Princeton before I taught here. And, and the perspective of a 27 or 28 or 29 or 30 year old on education, I think is much different than when they are an undergraduate. So it's a, I think it's a much more mature opportunity to understand what education is and also select a field that you're really interested in, which may be different from when you were an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think 
our our officer corps in particular, not not exclusively, but our officer corps in particular. I've rarely met somebody that didn't want an advanced degree, you know, in the officer community. So this is a this is a great path to do it. It still has to this day all the other aspects of it: the quality living for the house. I'm sorry for the family. Uh, obviously, it's in Monterey, but it also studies. Yeah, real fleet problems. So it hasn't. You can bring your expertise, whatever it might be, uh, from whatever community. Having experienced problems there, you can pick a curriculum. Uh, you know, very technical to national security. Most of it is technical. Uh, it, you know, extraordinary aerospace, extraordinary double E, extraordinary mechanical engineering, uh, and these days moving very much into machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, computer science. Uh, it's had a computer science curriculum for some time. Uh, you know, areas that are really relevant for the future to really study a problem in depth and then make a big, potentially have an impact on the fleet that you're going back to. So that's different from going to some other great school for a master's degree in a subject area, but the application of what you're gonna study it won't be to fleet problems per se. So it's a special place and a special opportunity for, for lots of reasons, not least of which is that you can study real world problems and have an impact. Okay, between 1985 and 1987, you were the, the commanding officer of the USS Goldsboro DDG-20. Um, you were you were assigned to this ship at kind of the end of her, of its lifespan. It was the oldest combatant ship assigned to Pearl Harbor at the time. It was launched in 1961 and had a crew of 325 sailors and 23 officers. Can you discuss the challenges of commanding such an older ship, or what were there, or was it in good maintenance shape when you received it? Um. There's a lot to that question. Um, so I mentioned I was at the postgraduate school. I screened for commander command. Uh, and because I was what we call a third looker, you know, my initial assignment, you always put preference cards in, this is what I'd like to do. But I was assigned, uh, I, was, I was actually then slated to go to an F, a reserve frigate in Long Beach, California. I should remember the name. I did for a long time. Uh, but all of that is to say, which was a great assignment. I was delighted to, to screen. But I also knew somebody that wanted to command a ship, command from then on, that the likelihood that any command, that I'd get command after that as a Navy captain, major command, one of the cruisers or squadrons, was pretty close to zero. Because reserve frigate COs, they did, typically they didn't deploy, they didn't have the visibility, they didn't have the systems, uh, uh, they didn't get exposed, and so the odds of me going further, I would, not, in terms of command at sea, were very slim. Uh, my wife and I, and again, I've mentioned we're from Los Angeles, the, the Los Angeles area. So we're looking for a place to live, and we had literally closed in on leasing a house uh, in Long Beach, um, I think it was in Wilmington, um, when there were a series of ships that got in trouble because of 1,200-pound engineering. 
Um, and all of a sudden, that same detailer who told me I didn't have a chance of going anywhere else calls me up and says, I think we're going to, we need to change your orders. Uh, and there were, as I recall, there were three of us that pre were previously detailed somewhere else. Uh, but we all had 1,200 pound engineering experience going back to, I had been engineer on Fox, which I think I've described here as the hardest tour I ever had, except when I was chairman. Um, so they were looking for 1,200 pound engineers to be COs. Uh, and Goldsboro was one of those. So I got diverted uh, and I got moved early. Uh, and there, one of my mentors was a guy out of, I got moved early out of the prospective commanding officers curriculum in Newport um, to go to this ship because Goldsboro was in trouble, not just for engineering, but for other reasons. Um, and uh, one of my mentors throughout my naval career, uh, late, later in my naval career, was uh, a guy named Phil Cody, Admiral Phil Cody, then a captain. He was running the curriculum at PCO school in Newport at Swass, uh, and they had never let anybody out early. So they go through this drill of, of we can't let them go, et cetera. And Phil finally, uh, essentially, finally said, okay, you can go. I mean, he, re he relinquished to let me go. So lickety split, instead of driving from Monterey down to LA, we're on a plane out to Hawaii. And I relieve uh, an accelerated, uh, the, the individual I relieved was not relieved for cause, but the Commodore wanted him off. And he wanted him off for a number of reasons. The morale in the ship, the, one of the security guards had killed himself, uh, the ASROC security guards had killed himself on watch a few months before that. They were struggling with uh, audits of the money in the, uh, in the uh, ship store, among other things. Uh, and, they'd, and, they'd had a, and they'd had some engineering challenges, although that wasn't, quite frankly, that was not the major reason per se. But, but to your point, it was the oldest ship out there, 1,200-pound plants. We've talked about that before. Were very difficult, very challenging, and I had that experience. What I found when I got, so I took over we went to sea. I relieved, you know, a nice picture, but I'm out off, you know, um, Diamond Heads, you know, one morning in white. We get underway. We go do that. We come back. I drop off my, the guy that I relieved, and we go back out to sea. Uh, but honestly, uh, what I found was a ship that was mostly in need of leadership, uh, and that was something I thrived on, and relatively speaking, uh, it, command isn't easy, but relatively speaking, it was a pretty, it, it, it was a relatively easy challenge. It wasn't, the ship was a challenge because of its old, but, but I had mentioned before, I'd been on Fox, I'd been on Starrett. Uh, Goldsboro was a, was a air defense ship uh, as well, the guided missile destroyer. It also had some pretty significant upgraded air defense systems, AAW systems, we call them, in terms of radar and in terms of the tactical data system that almost made it as good as a cruiser, which, you know, I was very familiar with that. So we picked up on that and used air defense, uh, that air defense capability to really make a name for ourselves. Um, we, that was, so that's 1985. We operated a lot. Um, we, I actually ended up, I mean, just because it's a, it was kind of a fun fact 
we ended up living out in uh, Pearl City in one of three historic homes that were reserved for commanding officers that were homes bought by the Japanese, sorry, built by the Japanese in the 20s, bought by Pan Am in the 30s to use for their clipper ships when they first started flying out there and they would land in Middle Lock, which is where the housing was just off of. Um, uh, and while we were there, actually, over the course of that two and a half years, uh, they celebrated the 50th anniversary of that. Uh, I think it was 50th, if I have that right, um, um, anniversary of the, those homes, which was kind of a, and they were wonderful historic homes. Um, uh, and then, but the ship was busy. I mean, we, we, we were at sea a ton, including a deployment um, in 80, from I think fall of 86 uh, through uh, um, the spring of 87, a deployment to the Gulf, uh, Persian Gulf, um, which as you may recall in 1981, when I was on the Fox said, I'm glad I've been here. I know I won't be here again obviously, and returning on the, on the Goldsboro was a, uh, was a uh, sort of the beginning of many, many more times uh, in the Gulf. And I can remember probably the most, and this was, we went in right after the, the tragedy of the USS Stark having gotten hit by uh, uh, an air-to-surface missile and almost sinking and killing a number of sailors. So we were on high alert for that. This was during the, this was right in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. Tensions were way up. Uh, I can remember, you know, on, on this deployment, on one situation in particular, making a decision uh, because we had an unknown aircraft coming off Iran and we weren't sure, we weren't very far from the Iranian coast uh, and we weren't sure what it was um, and making a decision literally at the last minute to not shoot, uh, and it turned out to be a commercial airliner. Two years later, or three, two, a uh, year later, uh, we had the tragedy of USS Vincennes actually shooting down a uh, Iranian commercial airliner and killing, I want to say, 287, as I recall, 287 uh, um, civilians that were on that airplane. So it was a very tense time in that regard, but. I had a, you know, I had a great wardroom, I had a great crew, uh, and the ship, you know, we won all the awards uh, that you win in a squad, you compete for in a squadron. So Goldsboro went from the ship that was near the bottom in terms of its reputation and ranking uh, over the course of that two and a half years to, I believe, the best ship uh, in Hawaii. And, and also to belie the reputation of the ships in Hawaii, the others of us on the, in the Pacific, would call it the pineapple fleet for obvious reasons. Uh, but the inference was, you know, didn't operate that well, et cetera. And, and I found the ships out there, which were all frigates and DDGs, they operated really well and they operated a lot. And so I've, I've literally, I've tried to, to uh, uh, debunk that reputation over the course of my career once that started. So it was a really impactful tour in many, many ways. Do you recall an incident on 5 January 1987 in the Persian Gulf when a merchant vessel fired a SAM at a Navy SH-2 helicopter? The helicopter was from the O'Bannon 
but your ship apparently ha shadowed the alleged perpetrator for a while. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm sure we did. I, I just don't. I, I, but I, I would say that's just indicative of the tension that was out there. I mean, that, that whole deployment, the tension was huge. And we were, I think, in the Gulf two and a half months, you know, you know that kind of time frame. Uh, no liberty, you know, tension was way up. So when we came out, actually the first port visit we went to coming out of there was Cochin, India. And I can just remember, which is on the southwest coast of India, toward uh, very far south, wonderful part of India. But, you know, small town, I got three, two, two of us went, two ships, so another DDG. Uh, and there were, the deployment was three DDGs. We called it the three DDG deployment. Um, Robeson was one, and a good friend of mine, Jim Hinkle, was a CO, and I can't remember the, can't remember the third one. I think it was DDG seven. I just can't remember the name. Um, uh, but Hinkle and I, so he took he was CEO Robeson. I had Goldsboro. We went into Cochin, so seven hundred sailors hitting the hitting the beach, and we were met by Sister Teresa's group, you know, on the pier, <clears throat> and it wasn't a big town. And keeping the lid on while 700 sailors are on liberty over the course of four days was a real challenge. We went from there to Singapore, and uh, Singapore can absorb uh, that kind of <clears throat> liberty, if you will, or th that number of sailors much more easily. And then subsequently went to Australia, uh, which is the first time I'd been to Australia. I've been trying to get there. My wife's family literally is from, my wife's mother was a war bride from Sydney. So I was able to actually, we, uh, Hinkle and I went to, uh, went to Australia. He was actually, Hinkle was actually born in Brisbane, so he went to Brisbane. Uh, I mean, we both went to Brisbane, and we both went through what I still think is probably the most fabulous seedy tale, you know, on the earth, which is the Great Barrier Reef. Right? Just uh, unbelievable, just an unbelievably gorgeous, challenging day and night transit with this extraordinary pilot um, uh, to, to come over the top, if you will. We visited Darwin, uh, and, then, uh, and then we went all the way through the reef down to Brisbane eventually. Uh, um, uh, and uh, again, that was, a, those were, that, those were, that was a fun part of the deployment after a pretty tense time. Do you recall when you were in Cochin meeting uh, Admiral uh, Hiranan Nandani Vice Chief of the Indian Naval Staff. Yeah, I do. I mean, I I wouldn't remember his name, but I do remember. And I also remember nothing but Soviet class uh, ships that were that we were seeing. Uh, as I recall, they, they one of the groups was Cashin Cashin destroyers, uh, and and they were there. So I had been studying this gear, these ships, my whole life, and all of a sudden there I was pretty close to him. But I, I do remember meeting, you know, a very senior individual at the time. And can you comment on, that was the beginning of sort of a shift with, with India away from the USSR, more towards the US. I mean, they're still very much a neutral country. Yeah. But can you talk about the relationship between the US Navy and the Indian Navy? And I should comment, I actually met Admiral Hiranan Nandani when he spent three weeks at the Naval History and Heritage Command. He's, he's an intellectual, very yeah. interested in naval history. Well, I do, I mean, I do remember that interaction, and it was a very comfortable, as is oftentimes the case, 
you know, just because we're seagoing types, it's a pretty easy conversation to have because we understand the, uh, the environment we operate in. We understand the challenges. So it was a, you know, it was a, it was a good visit in that regard. Professionally, also very good. And yes, the backdrop was they'd gotten all their gear from the Soviets forever and ever. And I do recall, as you asked the question, that was beginning to change. But here we are 40 years later, and we're still talking about the Indians today with Russian equipment. So, uh, you know, the, the, the shift hasn't, is nowhere near complete uh, in that regard. And they are a, they have historically been an avidly neutral nation. Uh, and in, in many ways, that's been their priority. I mean, we're living at a time now where they've agreed to to uh, um, join the Quad as one of the four countries that gets together. But I think, first of all, I think strategically, there, our relationship with India is really critical. And secondly, it's just, so it's been 40 years. It's going to take another 40 years. I mean, India just is very cautious about this kind of change. They will continue to be. I believe eventually they'll get to a very good place here, but they're going to get to it on their schedule, not on our schedule. I had the the privilege of reading some of your family grams uh, that you wrote as CO uh, on this ship, and I was just I was struck by how they captured the life and times of the ship, everything from the steel beach barbecues to steaming into exotic ports of call. You clearly enjoyed writing these and, and highlighting the, ch the achievements of your ship and crew. H how did you become such a good writer? <laughs> um, well, my parents were both writers. Uh, I think I would have said, you know, one of the things I should have said, you know, growing up, I read a lot. Although, in, in, in fact, in my, in my SATs getting into the Naval Academy, I think I had to take the English five times before I qualified, before I got a high enough score, uh, which, which sort of belied what I thought was my expertise in terms of writing, et cetera. But um, it's just something I've always enjoyed, and I really did enjoy that. And, and part of it was, uh, I mean, I, I, I teach here, I've talked about that, and one of the things I've talked to the mids about it was when they get in the fleet, if, when you recognize your good sailors or Marines, if you really want to hook them, you send a letter off to their mom or dad and say, look how well they did. And when you hook their parents, you're going to hook them, if you will. And so I've always, and this goes back to Deb, who's just been extraordinary with families and focus on families, you know, literally our whole adult life. I always tried to keep the families in mind and keep them informed who was doing well, what we were doing, uh, at a time where this was the communication. I mean, they, they were, you know, we were mailing this stuff, putting stamps on it. Uh, this was long before we had any kind of uh, connectivity like email or, or uh, social media, which obviously is instantaneous right now. Um, I will say, and I hadn't thought about this in a long time. I will say the number I've got, the number of letters I got back from family members about you know how much they enjoyed it and the story. And we try to tell a story when you write the story lines, if you will, uh, that I you know I just really enjoyed. And again, this was a crew that I dearly loved. 
they were extraordinary. I mentioned the ship, while it was troubled, what they really needed was leadership. And once you give them that, they will do anything for you. And they did that for me on Goldsboro. So I cared about them deeply. I should go back and read them again. You should. I'll send them to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so many naval officers in the surface community feel that destroyer command is the pinnacle of their career. Yeah. And Admiral James Stavridis even wrote a book called Destroyer Captain, Lessons of a First Command. Yeah. What were the, I know this wasn't your first command, but what were the lessons of this command? One of them, I mean, I'd learned a lot about commands, some of it the hard way, in Noxubi. So, and then it took me three looks to screen for the second one. So I didn't take anything for granted now. Yes, it was a leadership issue, but I didn't take anything for granted uh, with respect to because I'd had such a struggle professionally on my first command. Um, uh, so, so, so that was one. Uh, um, secondly, I mean, it's, it wasn't new, but the ability to empower your crew to essentially get the mission done and then to stay with that uh, was another one. I mean, that's not a new leadership issue, but it's, you know, it was a, it was a uh, very much a part of my style, and that's what, that really is what generated success in Goldsboro from my perspective. And I've, I mean, we'll talk again about the third command I had, which was USS Yorktown. Uh, because the ship was not in particularly good shape, in, in relatively speaking, it was easier, much easier than Yorktown. And when I took Yorktown over as a captain, uh, it was the Queen Bee. It was the number one ship. And, I, and one of the lessons that I've learned is it's a whole lot easier to take a ship that's, or an organization that's not doing particularly well and move them than it is to move somebody already at the top. The challenge at the top is a whole lot keeping that up is a whole lot different. Obviously, I hadn't learned that yet, but mostly I just didn't take it for granted because I'd worked so hard for it. I mean, it was 11 years. I think it was 11 years to recover professionally from hitting that buoy in 1973. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, obviously it's a risky business, but I was gonna do everything I could to make sure I didn't, uh, you know, mess it up the second time around. I'm a great investor in people, always have been, so investing in my people then uh, and investing in their careers, officer and enlisted, uh, was really important. One of the things that I still teach today, I had a, I had, we had a very sophisticated fire control system on Goldsboro for a DDG. Um, and we had, uh, we had a first class fire control technician named Taniguchi. Uh, uh, who he understood it better than anybody else. And, and he had some serious dental challenges just before we deployed, big, that needed to be taken care of, uh, and that were discovered in sort of the pre-deployment medical, et cetera. And I can remember, you know, that was bad news because we were about to deploy, but I basically said, go do that, against the advice of my entire chain of command, we can't lose this guy. The lesson is, whenever I've done that, he, he left, I think he joined us two months into deployment or something like that. Whenever I have <clears throat> uh, uh, 
let someone take advantage of an opportunity or a requirement. In this case, it was a requirement. Uh, but it might be a school, uh, training or education, whatever, that, to sort of move on in their life. I mean, every time it's happened, someone else has sort of been buried in the weeds. It's been held down by that individual, not intentionally. Someone else shows up, and it turns out, and sometimes they're better than the person that you let go. Uh, and that, to me, was better for the Navy because big Navy gets better and better for the individual and, in fact, no damage to the command. I've seen others who just hung on to people. Uh, so that's the first time... That's the first time I really remember uh, uh, that lesson, if you will, and I've, I've clung to that my whole career because I've always seen somebody step in, which has always been incredibly rewarding. So beginning in 1987 then, uh, you had a slew of shore assignments uh, at a pretty interesting time to be in the Navy in general uh, because of everything going on. And we'll get to bits of that here and there as we move through these assignments. But the first thing you got to do was uh, go be a teacher. And as you just said a few minutes ago, you previously in your uh, last exposure to education, you had been in a position where you were the students of people who were essentially at your rank. Yeah. Uh, so in 1987, you went to Newport to be the director of the division officer course for SWO school. Uh, is, is that typical then for that point in your career or were you still a little bit behind the curve? for uh, the educational end of things. But how exactly, what I'm asking is, how exactly did that come about? Did you choose to go do this, or was this something that you were assigned No, to? I was chosen. Uh, and as I tell a lot of people, uh, when they get orders, you know, that you need to look up the definition of order. You know, <laughs> this isn't a debate. <laughs> this is an order. You go. Uh, and I was actually handpicked by, uh, again, a dear friend, eventually a flag officer, who was the commanding officer SWAS, uh, Admiral, or then Captain Paul Tobin. And Tobin had been, when I was a, in destroyer school in 1970, uh, Tobin had been one of the lieutenants there teaching engineering. And just, he was a master engineer, known for that, you know, nobody better, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, but he, had a real need, he had a real challenge at SWAS. So, so this division officer course, you've got a couple hundred students who were mostly ensigns, uh, and this was the curriculum, six-month curriculum, I think, before they go to their ship, final training and go to their ship for their first assignment. So it's an extraordinarily important time. They've all graduated from Annapolis or, uh, uh, or U, UCLA, SC, University of Nebraska, the NROTC program, uh, and OCS. Um, and Tobin needed, he needed significant change there. Uh, so he reached into the system and the community said, you're going to go. Now I have not been to Washington yet. You know, that's, you know, that's not typically a good thing. You may recall when, when, uh, I, maybe I didn't say this, when Giffen and I were talking about where I was going after I left the Starrett, Giffen said, if you don't come to Washington, you're dead. So that was 1983. Now it's four years later. Same, same holds true. Uh, and you know, I just sort of put, I didn't have a lot of choice. I didn't put my faith, I had to put my faith in the system that somehow they'd take care of me. Uh, so I went to that course for, I think it was two years. Again, it was a, having had a pretty arduous time at sea, you know, uh, 
in back-to-back tours. Actually, uh, um, I'd gone to PG school, so I had a break at PG school, gone back to sea in command. Now I was coming ashore again. Uh, it was a great family tour, and we loved Newport. Uh, we came, you know, we were in Hawaii. We didn't, I don't think my kids, uh, they didn't have a long pair of pants, and we transferred in October to Newport, Rhode Island, and first thing we ended up doing, I mean, we, they had no, we had no wardrobe for the, for the cooling air, which eventually got really cold. But we loved Newport, loved the command, uh, and uh, was there, you know, for a couple years. Um, and working for, again, working for a really good guy. I've been really blessed. I, my bosses, uh, save one, and, and we can talk about that down the road. Uh, no, actually, uh, that not true. Uh, when I was on uh, Goldsboro, the one star out there was a pretty, pretty tough hombre. Uh, Bob Ryman was his name. But, but my bosses throughout my career were really good bosses and really highly professional, good people that I really enjoyed working for. And Paul Tobin was another one. So, uh, and I would encourage young people, you, you know, I mean, go somewhere where you're wanted. And if you know your boss and you know it's going to be really good, that's something else I'd try to do, uh, per se. But this was a by-name call. We In the detailing world, that's what we call it. By-name call to go to this job. And it turned out to be a great couple of years. So how did you find being a teacher specifically? Well, I didn't out? teach a lot. I mean, I ran, you the, the I ran the course. I engaged a lot. I can remember... Uh, uh, in particular because I had been stationed here uh, at the Naval Academy. Um, but I can remember, you know, a bunch of the Naval Academy types sort of slacking off. They'd graduated, thought, you know, they knew it all, et cetera. And I, I actually pulled them up pretty short in that regard, got them all together relatively early in the course uh, with and laying out what my expectations were and the importance that uh, that uh, of that with respect to their getting off to a good start, um, but I dearly love the love the uh, uh, the assignment. I, I can remember. So another thing that I can recall from that. So it was you know in the mid '70s when we brought women into the Naval Academy uh, at the time, and one of the big issues back there back then was was upper body strength because women just didn't have it. Uh, and, you know, that was a reason that they shouldn't be here, et cetera, which I didn't believe. But the fact was, you know, they just they didn't have the upper body strength. So the physical exam, the PRT, you know, was different between men and women. And whenever you have that, you're opening up a, you know, pretty wide road for the critics to run their 18 wheelers through and criticize the program. Uh, but I can remember going out to kick off a, a like a five mile run or so, you know, it was a competitive run and I, I wasn't going to run in it, but I was going to go and I, cause I wasn't much of a runner. Uh, um, so everybody was getting together and warming up and this gal, this gal who was a recent Naval Academy graduate was getting ready and she drops down right over here and does a hundred pushups. You know, I never did a hundred pushups ever as a mid, you know, throughout my life. And, and I, the only reason I bring that is because, so this is 10 years later, right? I mean, we're we're changing the requirement you know the the women that are showing up recognize they have to be stronger uh and more and more of them are you know are starting you know are meeting that standard i mean i just remember that uh, that video in my head and it's back to my advocacy for integration of women historic integration uh, of women into the services and this is still 
prior to uh, the law changing, I think the law changed in 91, everywhere except submarines um, uh, and SEALs. And, and now, even now as we speak today, all that is different. Um, so it was just, you know, and it's one of those things, it's such a great, as it is right now teaching midshipmen here, it's just, it's part of what I love to do is invest in young people. So that having an impact, you know, at that age for now it's serious. I mean, these are now graduate, these are officers now. And that's another thing you're no longer mids, you know, don't screw this up. You know, behavior matters. You're wearing that uniform all the time. Don't do anything stupid. Uh, to wreck your career before it even gets started. So it was a terrific opportunity, and I really enjoyed it. That's a pretty remarkable shift, too, in the uh, students that you were seeing just yeah. in a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You made the comment when we talked about your time uh, working with the Academy of how, you know, trying to get women integrated was, was really feeling around in the dark a little bit, and there, there wasn't really any big time strong ideas of how to make things work yeah. just because there was so much to do. So yeah. I, it's just remarkable how much changes. Yeah. Yeah. Even in that amount, and, that, and that's not to say that this gal that did 100 push-ups was the norm, but yeah, I just, no, it I, just I, struck me yeah. that I and I, that I she was just warming up by the way to get ready to go run. So, so you needed to get to Washington for your career. I did, uh, and whereas before maybe 1987-ish, that probably would have been uh, somewhere in the Pentagon or OpNav specifically, or uh, not OSD is where I'm going with that. Uh, 1987, we get Goldwater Nichols, and OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, becomes a much more uh, desirable place for people to be in order to further their careers. You managed to land a uh, position as Staff Assistant for Navy Programs, Office of the Secretary of, of Defense, Director of Operational Test and Evaluation in 1989, yeah. which is uh, you know, quite a long name, but there's uh, quite a lot of interesting programs you find yourself involved in when you get in there. How did you get into that office? How did that billet uh, happen? So, Go Water Nichols changes the law. You now, if you have a future, you need to have a joint tour. Uh, and there was ongoing definition of what qualified as a joint tour, some of which had been determined. And I can remember being there, a classmate of mine who was in the War College at Newport, a uh, guy named Willie Moore, uh, another peer of mine, Greg Johnson, uh, another classmate of mine. These were, were all 05s making 06. Uh, and uh, Greg Johnson, uh, Rich Nyby, who was a classmate, everybody was in the work, and they were in the same boat. We know we got to go be joint if we have a future. Uh, and we need jobs, and so we start looking for jobs, and there aren't, there aren't a lot. Uh, and the detailers only got, whatever the detailer had, it wasn't enough to sort of cover the, the landscape. So I linked up with another classmate of mine who had moved a couple years ahead of me, who was early selected early in his career, a guy named John Lyons, who I didn't know as a classmate, uh, surface nuke, uh, has since become a great friend, who was looking for a relief, and I can't remember how I got connected to him, uh, but OSD, DOT&E, uh, as you describe it, well, it wasn't a priority for anybody, but it was a job, and John needed a relief, and so I was able to work that back through the system to relieve him, and I got into DOT&E, which was a pretty fascinating place to be for a number of reasons, more so in hindsight than I understood at the time, because DOT&E had this charter 
that was both up to the Secretary of Defense, but also over to Congress. So it became my first, obviously I was in D.C. for the first time. Mm -hmm. It became my first sort of what goes, how does the Hill work kind of thing. And, uh, and for each of these major programs that you had in operational test and evaluation, which was really, we have this new system. One I'll give you an example of. Well, I, I had Tomahawk, which was relatively new at the time. Uh, so it's one thing to test it in development. You know, the, the contractors got it. They set up all the tests, et cetera. It's another thing to create an operational environment and test a weapon system in it, which is what I got to do with a number of systems, uh, which included uh, Tomahawk. Probably the most controversial was SSN-21. Uh, because I was a black shoe, I was a surface, I was a destroyer guy, uh, and now I was inside the the tent, reluctantly as far as any submariner was concerned, uh, particularly Bruce DeMars, who was who had Rickover's job at the time, um, uh, in terms of what was going on in the submarine world. They didn't like to like they didn't like to let foreigners like me, you know, <laughs> into that community. Um, but but at, after the operational test and after the operational test was done, it was a requirement in the acquisition cycle in order to then uh, give it the thumbs up, and they were now going to produce it at some number. Um, but I would myself and my peers, I would write the report to Congress to say this is what happened in the OT, and this was the good side, and this was the bad side. So you could really crush a system that deserved being crushed even though uh, a service, and it was all the services, thought we needed to move forward. And these were, for the most part, the major programs. They, we used to call them ACAT-1 programs. And that was based on the amount of money that uh, the program, uh, um, the, the resources that it had. So the, so the job was much more impactful than I realized. And there was an independent uh, civilian political appointee that ran the office. Uh, which was a big deal. So it was the first time I sort of got into the tensions between what we call the third deck, which is the OSD, uh, the Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, and the services, as well as between the building and the hill about how do we proceed in acquisition. So it was an enormously helpful tour. I go back to uh, instructive, educational, and I go back to the uh, uh, we talked about the OR degree, and there's a there's a testing and evaluation subset in operations research. How do you create a test that actually gives you uh, results that you can believe in? For example, so it was the first application, if you will, of that of that degree for me uh, in in that particular world. Spent a fair amount of time down at the Navy's operational test and evaluation force. Uh, for Navy systems down in Norfolk um, uh, and, and watched many developmental tests before we got to the operational test. And then I was charged with writing the operational test for sure. a system um, uh, and, uh, again, learned a ton about the acquisition world uh, um, and, uh, and its requirements. And obviously I was, in the back of my head, I wanted the systems to work because I knew they were headed. I also met, for the first time, a wonderful uh, Navy three-star by the name submariner, by the name of J. Guy Reynolds, who ran Op 91 
for the Navy, which was the operation, which was the operational, which was the test and evaluation directorate on the CNO staff. Um, and Reynolds, actually, even though he was a submariner, he did let me in. He did know the importance of it. So I struggled with the submarine community on the OPNAV staff. Three of them, all of all of them, my classmates actually. Hmm. Uh, one was the fire control system. One was the ship, uh, and I think the third one was the uh, was the engineering aspect of it. Um, I came in, but anyway, they're good guy. I mean, I I knew a couple of them already. The third one I met then, um, and uh, again, it was the first jump in the pool for Washington for me. Was this your first exposure to some of these programs uh, yeah. that you were helping write the test for? Absolutely. No, absolutely. These were all, these were all major programs that were going to be going to be fielded. So I hadn't seen them uh, in the fleet. And I, I assume then you you had a pretty wide purview, and it wasn't just a couple of programs. It was literally everything from what you're saying. Well, there were programs that were assigned to me. The, okay. The there was the deputy in the office was a guy named Lee Frame, who was a retired nuclear submarine cap navy captain and and he thought it really important for the submarine community to have somebody that wasn't a submariner evaluate that and we had a hmm. we had an aviator a submariner and a surface type in the in the shop all of us 06s that worked various programs mostly if not i think yeah we we basically just worked the navy programs I wanted to ask, you mentioned you were in charge of operational testing of the TLAM, Tomahawk Land yeah, Attack Missile. Yeah, this is 89, 89 um, Did you look at the performance of the missile when, when it was used against Libya in the 80s? And I believe it was also used in, against Iraq around this no, time. No, but I thought, <clears throat> I, I might be wrong on this. I don't think we shot it. In, did we shoot it in 86? So. In Libya, I think I believe so. Um, I just don't remember it being very advanced. I mean, my recollection was the first time we used it, certainly in any kind of significant numbers, was was uh, Desert Storm uh, in Iraq, um, and we did look at the. We certainly looked at the performance of that when it occurred. Now, this was ninety, uh, and I was, you know, I was actually out of the office then. I I was there for, I was there in, from 87 to 89. So when that system went off and was used in Iraq, I wasn't I was no longer evaluating it. Um, but we looked at every aspect of the TLAM system back then, uh, classified and unclassified, uh, all the capabilities, <clears throat> um, and that was, you know, this is a uh, this is the my my own experience was sort of the first system that could start to navigate itself. I mean, it became much more, it's much more sophisticated today than it was then. Um, and what I do remember, um, and this is, this is very instructive to me, uh, that systems that were built to fight the Soviets adapted pretty well. Aegis was one, the Aegis weapon system. Uh, TLAM was another that adapted pretty well to a new world after the wall came down. Uh, and Iraq was just an example of that. Um, and we had conventional tomahawk and we had nuclear tomahawks uh, as well uh, in that time frame. Was there concern in the aviation community that this would 
be competition for them, the TLAM. And I'm really thinking fast forward to 2011 where we, we, we deployed two DDGs and an SSGN that basically took the place of a big deck carrier in terms of, uh, in terms of strike from the sky. Uh, can you comment there, on there that? There was, you know, back then there, there may have been a little of that, but it really wasn't that much. I mean, one of the, and this was brought home to me in later years, uh, you know, one of the real strengths of the carrier is the firepower and the repeatability of it. And when you shoot 100 missiles, whatever the SSBNs or SSGNs have, 100, 150, you know, when you shoot them, they're gone. I mean, you, you can't get any more at that point. So, and it's, a, it's actually a discussion that I've had with respect to China these days and the carriers, you know, that it has de is developing. You know, those are not very good warfighting ships, certainly at our level, because they can't generate the firepower that our carriers can uh, and ha have and can in the past. There was probably more of that later on in the, you know, 2010-11 time frame, but not, again, it wasn't a particularly compelling argument or a compelling concern, occasional discussions. I just don't remember anything like that, certainly way back in at the beginning of the TLAM story. But the TLAM really was a force multiplier yeah. for the D, for the DDG, absolutely. the RLA Burke class. Absolutely. It really transformed that yeah. weapon system. And no, absolutely, it did. There's no question about that. Um, and, and in ways, you could argue it, you know, it transformed the submarine force as well because it became a strike capability, which we really didn't have. Definitely going to ask you a little bit more about that when we get to your time in N86 later, because yeah. uh, I think you you talked about that a bit at the end of your tour with N86. Yeah. Um, but for now, with OSD, uh, this, did this feel like a pretty substantial break from your previous time in the Navy, or did it seem like it was something that, that fit fairly well with what you'd been doing? Well, one of the, I mean, actually, one of the big takeaways from that tour is that I realized, because I'm around other colonels from other services, uh, and from, I mean, including the Marine Corps, is, you know, it's not all about the Navy. I mean, it was one of the messages of, of go water nickels is we got to figure out how to fight together. And the other thing when you're in a you're in a place like that is you start you're outside your service so you you can kind of see in as opposed to being inside and not being able to see out. Uh, and having that more objective outside perspective, uh, I thought was a great advantage and actually proved to be a big help. You know, way down the road, I had no idea about my future at that particular point in time. Uh, it was also an opportunity to see other services and how they did things and that they're not all wrong and sometimes they do them better than you do. Uh, and can we take advantage of that? But that even was true inside. I had less trouble as a surface guy with aviation, the aviation systems that I uh, was doing testing about for, operational testing about for, than I did the submarine force. They just didn't want anybody in. And so, that was one of the big challenges is how do I, you know, now that I have legal authority and regulatory authority to get inside SSN 21, how do I, how do I find out what I need to do? Uh, and as you know, one of the places that I, you know, that I got exposed to was Lake Ponderé up in, uh, up in Idaho, Corleone, Corleone, Idaho, which I didn't even know existed. Uh, 
you know, and the testing that's associated with air because okay. it's, you know, it's very quiet. Uh, and the submarines, I mean, they do an extraordinary job. They know what they need to do to build these platforms to make them survivable, and they do an extraordinary job in that. And there's lessons to be learned by all of us, you know, from, from that point of view as well. So it's, it was the first time for me that I really started to get exposed outside, you know, my dis cruiser destroyer life, per se, which was, I thought, very healthy. Especially, I assume, in your commands going forward, considering yeah. you moved up yeah. to uh, things that weren't destroyers yes, anymore. Yes, correct. Um, so which, uh, lastly, which uh, program do you think sticks with you the most? That you worked on while you were there. Oh, I, I don't think it's SSN twenty one. Clearly, I mean, I Tomahawk was a big deal. I mean, we were we were also testing uh, what do we call them. We we were also testing the bomblet. Uh, I remember, you know, that's when the the bomblet they put we put fifty. I think it was fifty three little bomblets in the uh, in the in the TLAM to be released, and you turn the TLAM away from the target. And drop it somewhere else. Uh, I mean, I got to China Lake, which is a unique place in the world. Quite frankly, they just like blowing stuff up. China <laughs> Lake. And there are people, there are people their whole life that are out there, and they just love blowing stuff up. Um, but other other tests and evaluation um, uh, places as well, which was. It just, it really did start to open up the Navy in a, in a much different way than, uh, but those are the two, I think, both the TLAM as well as the, as the, the new submarine. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to stop on okay. that note. So, uh, Admiral, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, Dr. Sherwood, likewise. Thank you. Thanks. It's v great to be with you. Very much looking forward to next time. This yep. has been Preble Hall. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.